Oh, good morning, everybody. Oh, haven't I seen the Times today? It's a wonderful uh, <coughs> facsimile of the assassination. Those of you who aren't aware, a hundred years to the day, <laughs> the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand and his wife in Sarajevo. What's interesting about that, he talks about it, and he's got the original here, and it says on page seven. <laughs> we might, you may think of it as a seminal episode in world politics, but at the time it was relegated to page seven, so it was of interest, but not necessarily uh, the most important issue of the day. So what I say, uh, today marks a centenary when Franz Ferdinand, Archduke of Austria, and his wife Sophie, Duchess of Holmberg, were assassinated in Sarajevo by Gravrilo Prinkip, a member of the Black Hand, a Serbian nationalist group. Franz Ferdinand was nephew of the aging <coughs> Emperor of Austria, Franz Joseph, and a presumptive to the Austro-Hungarian throne. News of the killing is contained in the dispatch from the British ambassador in Vienna, Sir Maurice de Bunsen, to Sir Edward Grey, the Foreign Secretary. And this is in our record series, FO371. And, I say, unlike most diplomatic exchanges, it reads something like a thriller. <laughs> a man, this is the ambassador writing back, a man, Gavrilo Prinkip, ran from the crowd and fired rapidly several shots from a browning pistol into the car. The Archduke's jugular vein was severed, and he must have died almost instantaneously. The Duchess was struck in the side and expired immediately after reaching the Konak, that's the uh, official residence, to which both were carried. A few steps from the scene of the murder, an unexploded bomb was found. It's presumed it was thrown away by a co-conspirator. Now, for many, the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand marks the start of the First World War. But we all know there's slightly more to the story than the simplistic narrative would suggest. In the next 30 minutes, I want to briefly outline the major diplomatic and military milestones that marked the road to war, and then discuss how the various intelligence organisations within Britain adapted to these changes within the European balance of power. So the first question when I was asked, thinking about putting this presentation to, together, is, well, where do we start? When did the First World War start? Do we, do we go back to Waterloo? Do we go back to the French Revolution? Uh, well, I'm going to start in 1831 and the signing of this, the Treaty of London. <laughs> this was treaty, the treaty which, by the European powers, guaranteed Belgium neutrality. Now, originally, the Dutch refused to sign or ratify the treaty until 1839, when a second treaty was signed, which repeated the assurances given earlier by Palmerston, and other European leaders. Now, Britain's relationship with Europe during this period, especially continental Europe, was characterised by non-engagement, or as some would term it, glorious isolation. And looking at the headlines in today's papers, some might think little has changed on that. <laughs> now, this reflects Britain's position as an island nation and was based on the long-standing premise that no one nation should be allowed to dominate the European mainland. The Crimean War, which broke out in 1853, further removed Britain from continental affairs. 
And the most significant aspects during this time for later events was the rise of German nationalism, which was personified in the form of Bismarck, who sought to unify the German state under Prussian leadership, not through speeches and debates, but through, as he would prefer it, iron and blood. Now, the first opportunity arose with Denmark and the Duchy of Schleswig-Holstein, which, to cut a long story short, uh, became part of the German Confederation in 1864. Now, I could go into some detail about Schleswig-Holstein, but I will use my only joke on the subject, which, as Palmerston later remarked, the Schleswig-Holstein question was so complicated that only three men in Europe ever understood it. One was Prince Albert, who is dead. The second was a German professor who became mad. And I'm the third, and have forgotten all about it. <laughs> so, following the successful annexation of Schleswig-Holstein, Prussia gradually began to absorb the North German states and to control the military and foreign policy of the South German states, such as Bavaria and Württemberg. Now, it's been argued whether this was a definitive policy of Bismarck. Some said it was, some said it wasn't on establishing a German state. I think probably it wasn't predicated at this point because the German states in the south were bastions of liberalism and Catholicism, which were two of his greatest pet hates. <laughs> so we have the German central states coalescing in, in Europe. So what did the other powers do? Well, the French, they refused to accept uh, this new balance of power. And in 1870, the imperial French government of Napoleon III declared war on Prussia and her allies. It was a disaster. The Germans quickly defeated the French army, invaded France, captured the emperor, and eventually conquered Paris. So what more could possibly go wrong? The swift nature of Russia's vic Prussia's victory convinced the majority of European statesmen and generals that wars in the modern age would be swift and relatively painless. While there is some truth in this analysis, the real reason for Prussian success was the ranking competence at both the strategic and operational level of Prussia's opponents. And the most dangerous result of this worldview was on the Germans themselves, who believed they had won due to their prowess on the battlefield rather than on the strategic and political realism which was exhibited by Bismarck himself. Now, the new German Empire, much to the chagrin of the French, presumably, was proclaimed in the Hall of Mirrors in Versailles in 1871, and enshrined on the principle that Prussian military might would remain independent of political <coughs> constraints. And this is the well-known painting by Anton von Werner of the moment. On the left here on the podium, in black, we've got Crown Prince Frederick, later Frederick III, his father, Emperor Wilhelm I, and Frederick I of Baden is proposing a toast to the new emperor somewhere. And we've got, I think, Bismarck somewhere over there to the right. So this was the, the high point to date of Prussian power. Now, how did others react? Uh, well, the British, in a speech to the House of Commons on the 9th of February, 1871, only three weeks after the proclamation of the German Empire, the Conservative statesman Benjamin Disraeli reflected on the strategic implications of the Franco-Prussian War. It was, he told members of the House, 
No common war like the war between Prussia and Austria in 1866, or indeed the Crimean War. The war represents the German Revolution, a greater political event even than the French Revolution of the last century. There was not a single diplomatic tradition which had not been swept away. Disraeli concluded that the balance of power has been entirely destroyed, and the country which suffers most and feels the effect of this change will be England. Now, Bismarck's dismissal by the young Kaiser Wilhelm II in 1890 brought a new generation of Germans to power who worshipped the military, whereas Bismarck had seen it primarily as a means to an end. Above all, this new generation believed that Germany, due to its culture and civilization, had the right to a place in the sun and embarked imperial foreign policy, the Weltpolitik. Now, the government soon embarked on a series of colonial adventures in Africa, Asia and the Pacific. And the British did not necessarily resent German ambitions to play a role on the world stage. How could they? They already had an empire. But British diplomats were more concerned over the ill-defined and mercurial nature of German foreign policy, which might provoke hostilities by accident rather than design. Of more immediate concern for the British was Germany's decision to launch a powerful naval fleet, which if left unchallenged would threaten the naval supremacy on which British power and security ultimately depended. Under Admiral Tirpitz, Secretary of the Navy between 1897 and 1916, the German Navy increased dramatically. Tirpitz's ultimate aim was probably to defeat the Royal Navy and to gain control of Britain's overseas empire. The challenge posed by Germany forced Britain into alliances with her ancient rivals, France and Russia. And over a five-year period, between 1902 and 1907, agreements were made with Japan, France and Russia, which eased British naval commitments in the Pacific, Mediterranean, and led to the Triple Entente. Now, the rise of German sea power, coupled with Britain's poor performance in the Boer War, where the British army took so long to defeat what was regarded as, quote, a rabble of untrained peasants, led to a mood of uncertainty and self-reflection. The sense of foreboding was summed up in a headline in the Morning Post of February 1903, which proclaimed, there is a menace growing up in the East which cannot be ignored. Sensing the public mood, a number of sensationalist novels began to appear. Now, one of the first was The Riddle of the Sands by Erskine Childers, which was published in 1903. don't know if anyone's familiar with, with the book. Well, in the book, we have two plucky English adventurers who stumble across German war plans for the invasion of Britain using a, a flotilla of barges and other subterfuges. Now, the book was a bestseller and led to questions in Parliament, surprisingly. Even the naval staff were asked to conduct a feasibility study as to whether the invasion plan described in the book was possible. And say so the verdict was succinct and to the point. As a novel, it is excellent. As a war plan, it is rubbish. <laughs> <laughs> and the worry of invasion persisted. And in 1903, the newly formed Committee of Imperial Defence was tasked by the Prime Minister of Balfour to prepare a report on the likelihood of invasion. The committee concluded that the minimum force required to mount a successful invasion would take about 70,000 men and would require about 200 boats, and the time taken to actually put this strategy together would give the Royal Navy sufficient time, hopefully, to repel it. 
Following that, we have the Moroccan crisis of 1906, in which Germany sought to increase her influence in French Morocco, and this pushed Britain and Germany closer to war and set off a further wave of spy stories and invasion scares. Now, one of the most influential of these was William Le Cue, uh, whose <coughs> novels included The Invasion of 1910 and Spies of the Kaiser. So I think we have... This is a rather lurid cover of The Invasion of 1910. You can't still read it, though, but a full account of the Siege of London. So this book uh, basically describes, you can see here, St Paul's under a fusillade of shellfire, uh, and it purported to show the invasion of Britain by Germany. Uh, the book was serialised by the Daily Mail with predictable results. <laughs> the clamour was such that the weekly news offered its readers £10 for information on German spies with letters to be addressed to the spy editor, who was inundated with letters from up and down the country describing dubious gentlemen walking in the woods with maps, inquiring about train times, or talking in strange accents. <laughs> now, the, the government, not surprisingly, was at first bemused about this, but such was the strength of public opinion that in March 1909, the Prime Minister appointed a high-powered subcommittee of the Committee of Imperial Defence to consider the question of foreign espionage in the United Kingdom and to make recommendations. And it's quite high-powered, as you can see from the, the people here that were in it. We have uh, Lord Haldane, Secretary of State for War, the First Lord of the Admiralty, the Home Secretary, the Postmaster General, representatives from the Foreign Office, Treasury, Military and Naval Intelligence. Between March and July 1909, the subcommittee met three times and made a number of recommendations, including, for interest to ourselves, the establishment of a secret service bureau, which should be in close touch of the Admiralty, War Office and Home Office, and served as a screen or cutout between the Admiralty and War Office and foreign spies, who may have secrets to sell. Secondly, it would send agents to various parts of Britain, and keep in touch with the county police forces with a view to establishing the nature and scope of any espionage that was being carried out. And third, in conjunction with the Admiralty and War Office, to obtain information in foreign countries. Now, this is probably the only time where a novel has probably had an influence on British foreign policy. But by the end of 1909, we have the establishment of the Secret Service Bureau. As is probably well known, the Bureau had two sections. It had a home section which is the forerunner of MI5, the security service, and a foreign section, which later became the secret intelligence service, and MI6. As I said, I have two heads, are better than one. It's a, it was a strange beast in that no single person was put in charge of it. It had two sections, as I say. The home section was placed under Captain Vernon Kell. Kell was 36, an exceptionally good linguist, fluent in French, Russian, German and Chinese, who was employed at the War Office as a German intelligence analyst. So reasonably suitable. Control of the Foreign Service was given to Commander Mansfield Cumming. Now he was a 50-year-old retired naval officer <coughs> and there's little in his background which seemed suited to secret work. He was a keen motorist, he joined the RAC in 1902 and in 1913 at the age of 54 had acquired his first pilot's licence. His most recent job was constructing boom defences in Southampton. He's also the uh, first head of MI6 to write in surnames of C. I don't know if you're familiar with the, the head of MI6, always sounds of C from Cummings. And he was the first to use green ink. <laughs> mm. 
So we do have a, a certain tradition that uh, comes down through the years. Now, the remaining section of this presentation, I'd like to look at the effectiveness of the Secret Service Bureau in the run-up to the First World War. And in order to answer how successful it was, we need to briefly look at the structure of the intelligence system as it existed in the first decade of the 20th century. Now, the British intelligence system, and I probably use the term loosely, <laughs> was composed of four elements. We have military intelligence within the War Office, naval intelligence of the Admiralty, special branch of the Metropolitan Police Service, and the Foreign Office, with its network of embassies and consulates abroad. And as I briefly go through... Uh, what we have here at the National Archives. And this body was formed in 1883, specifically to combat Fenian terrorism. But it, so there was a spate of Irish bomb attacks uh, in the country in the 1880s. But it soon expanded its remit and became responsible for acquiring, assessing and interpreting a wide range of intelligence relating to subversives, public disorder and terrorism in the UK. So it worked at home uh, and it worked with the, the, the Home Office largely. You don't have military intelligence... This was organised in the Directorate of Military Intelligence within the War Office, and it was to provide information on the strengths, weaknesses and strategic objectives of the enemy. And in 1904, following the failings of the South African War, a decision was taken to integrate the Intelligence Division within the Directorate of Military Operations. And we can see in this chart how these functions have changed over time. Uh, it was primarily based on foreign intelligence with special duty censorship here, and then in the changes, we get MO5, which is now charged with counter-espionage, which, when it was absorbed into the war office and the war became MI5. So that's where MI5 comes from. And we still have the foreign uh, services responsible for collating information abroad. And uh, we also, what we don't have on here, was there was no desire or willingness at the time to establish a unit for field operations. So consequently, when the war was declared, we had a motley collection of journalists, teachers and policemen who were summoned to the war office and informed they were to join a new unit known as the Intelligence Corps. And after three weeks' basic training, they were shipped out to France and assigned to the various headquarters. Uh, probably a, a rude awakening, I would Naval intelligence now. Quickly, this was established in the 1880s and became a division in 1912. Well, the Navy, unlike the Army, never possessed a general staff, and the Naval Intelligence Department increasingly fulfilled this type of role. Uh, when the war broke out, the Director of Naval Intelligence was William Reginald Blinker Hall, who got his name because he blinked a lot. <laughs> and he went on to establish the famous Room 14 Admiralty Building, responsible for other things, for breaking codes, including the interception of the Zimmerman Telegram, which we might hear something later on today. And the attachés were connected to the, the Foreign Office. Uh, as you can see here, this is a memorandum on the guidance of military attachés. There was concern within the Foreign Office that attachés shouldn't be uh, there as spies as such. They could go, as it says here, to keep themselves fully in touch by actually attending military parades, attending events, but not necessarily running agents. And this is where the Secret Service Bureau actually came in, and that they could run the agents, but not necessarily blacken the name of the Foreign Office, as it were. And the Foreign Office were very uh, careful on this matter, and it says they nevertheless stipulate that this tache should not conduct espionage or hire agents. So as we can see from that very quick scamper through the, uh, the field there, uh, the intelligence network 
strategy, whatever you want to call it, was a, a very crowded field. So how did the Secret Service Bureau perform in its formative years? Well, the results were mixed, I suppose. Uh, it's a less than surprising. In Kell's case, uh, the staff of the Home Department consisted of six officers, three detectives, six clerical staff, and a caretaker. So don't forget the caretaker. And it was lucky for Kell that the Home Secretary at the time was Winston Churchill, who showed both an enthusiasm and understanding of the limits and potential of intelligence. And to augment his force, Kell worked for the chief constables and was relatively successful in arresting a number of German spies. Now, this was largely achieved by the interception of mail, which is authorised by Home Office warrants, and the legislative framework was strengthened by the introduction of the Official Secrets Act in 1911. Finally, the Defence of the Realm Act was passed on the 8th of August 1914, four days after the UK entered the First World War. And DORA, as it was known, gave the government wide-ranging powers such as the power to requisition buildings or land needed for the war effort and undertake press censorship. Trivial peacetime activities were no longer permitted, included flying kites, starting bonfires, <coughs> buying binoculars, feeding wild animals bread, discussing naval and military matters or buying alcohol on public transport. Other aspects included the alcoholic beverages were watered down and pub opening times were restricted. And the defence of the Realm Act, in a sense, gave the government powers close to martial law. Enemy aliens were required to register with the police and forbidden to live in a large number of prohibited places. And the home section of the Secret Service Bureau was eventually integrated on the previous file into the War Office, which led to an expansion of its staff. So that's the home side. What about the, the foreign side? Well, the story section that was run by Cummings was a, probably a less rosy story as Clummings confided to his diary, I'd been here five weeks, not yet Simon name. <laughs> but the Secret Service Bureau soon began to recruit agents abroad and acquired one of its successes was uh, acquiring detailed dimensions of a 25,000 tonne German battleship, the Turrigan. Such success, however, was, was short-lived. In the summer of 1911, a German gunboat Panther docked at the Moroccan port of Agadir, which sparked off a rapid deterioration in relations between France and Germany, and possibly threatened war. A foreign, as the Foreign Service was basically created to gather this type of intelligence, Cummings later reflected that the Admiralty have lost the German fleet and asked us if we could find it. <laughs> Agents were dispatched, and the outcome of which was a, somewhat of a disaster. In one account, the agent was arrested in a public lavatory attempting to destroy a code book placed on her by a German double agent and was sentenced to three years in prison. Whatever the background, it wasn't an auspicious start. However, Cummings was more sanguine, stating that we must expect drawbacks such as these in this kind of business. Early warming of German attack was now the first priority of the Foreign Service, with agents established throughout Europe and in a number of continental ports. Now, as Britain entered 1914... The position was summed up well by Le Coup in one of his books, The Spies of the Kaiser. It says, No sane person can deny that England is in grave danger of invasion by Germany. It's a date not far distant. German spies are active at work in Great Britain. What is to be the outcome of all this organised espionage in England? What will happen? When will Germany strike? <coughs> Who knows? <laughs> so it was the role of the secret services to actually find this out. As 1914 approached, 
there was an awareness in the country that something was afoot. <laughs> we have Germany coming, Belgium there, no for us. So what will happen? Well, following the assassination, it provided the Hostel-Gungerian government with a ready-made excuse to launch what would believe to be a limited war against the manifestly weaker Serbs. Uh, Ferdinand's death was in itself not greatly mourned, either by the emperor, who had never been close, and had often been in political disagreement. And Germany, to all intents and purposes, was also spoiling for a confrontation and issued what was known as a blank check to the, to the Austrians. Much encouraged by the support of Germany, Austro-Hungary issued the ultimatum to Serbia on the 21st of July, and effectively revoked Serbian national sovereignty. Now, Austria thought that Serbia wouldn't actually accept it, but they did. And uh, basically, uh, they set in place what we now know as the uh, roll-up to actual war. Uh, the ultimatum of the 23rd, the declaration of war with Serbia five days later. Uh, the day after Serbia received the declaration, the capital of Belgrade was placed under bombardment. Now, initial reaction among the European populace was overwhelmingly enthusiastic. However, by war, by general agreement, was likely to be over by Christmas. And as we know, it wasn't. <laughs> so thank you for that. Sort of a bit of a counter for the July crisis there. But I hope... Uh, that has set the scene, as it were, for uh, the outbreak of war in 1914 and the background to that. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>